Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, this show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 210th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. The show continues to build on last week's episode, Parenting in a Tech World. Our guest today, a true academic, looks at technology through analyzing research, culture, and big tech companies. Gaia Bernstein is a law professor, co-director of the Institute for Privacy Protection and co-director of the Gibbons Institute for Law Science and Technology at the Seton Hall University School of Law. She writes, teaches, and lectures in the intersection of law, technology, health, and privacy. Gaia is also the mother of three children who grew up in a world of smartphones, iPads, and social networks. Her forthcoming book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies, shatters the illusion that we can control how much time we spend on our screens by resorting to self-help measures. Unwired shifts the responsibility for a solution from users to the technology industry, which designs its products to be addictive. The book draws out the legal action that can pressure the technology industry to redesign its products to reduce technology overuse. Gaia has academic degrees in both law and psychology. Her research combined findings from psychology, sociology, science, and technology studies with law and policy. Gaia's research has been featured extensively by the media, including the New York Times, Forbes, ABC News, and Psychology Today. Gaia has spearheaded the development of the Seton Hall University School of Law Institute for Privacy Protection's Student Parent Outreach Program. The nationally acclaimed outreach program addresses overuse of screens by focusing on developing a healthy online-offline balance and the impact on privacy and online reputation. It was featured by the Washington Post, CBS Morning News, and Common Sense Media. So welcome, Gaia Bernstein. Hi, nice to be here. Yes. The first question I ask all my guests is if you are a mom, and then what are the ages of your kids? I have three kids, and my oldest is 20, and I have twins who are 15-year-olds. Oh, girl. wow. Yeah. <laughs> Are they girls, boys, one of each? So my oldest is a boy and my twins are a boy and a girl. Okay. You have just written a book and it's just launching called Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. So why did you decide to write this book? It was not just one thing that's happened. It was a combination of things I observed, I would say starting from 2015, First about myself, I saw how the way I worked was changing. I'm a professor, so I often like to work in a coffee shop. And I would 
sit there and get my laptop out. And then two, three hours later, I would notice that I've gotten nothing done. And I was trying to figure out what's happening. And I noticed I was just texting people, texting my babysitters, answering emails at the time, blogs, lots of legal blogs. I was scrolling from one to the next and I felt tired (laughs) that I've done nothing. And then I was looking at things around me and I saw, I mean, my kids were even smaller at the time. So we used to go to lots of birthday parties and I would see the kids instead of playing with each other, sitting on their phones, not even looking at each other. Even if there was a TV out there, they would not even look at the TV. They would look at the different uh, screens. Also, you know, just going to end of the year performances. My twins love to perform. So there were lots of these. And suddenly I realized it's hard to see the show because everybody has their iPads and their phones in front of me. And I, and nobody's really also really looking. They're so busy taking the perfect pictures. And I, I noticed that something was very, very different. Yes. Who is the best audience for your book? You know, if you'd asked me this question before the pandemic, I would have said, uh, you know, parents and people who are working in related fields like policymaker, you know, educators, uh, people who work in health. But right now, I, I think the pandemic changed a lot because before the pandemic, parents really paid attention. They noticed that something was very different about their kids. These kids, which they were giving so much attention to, as people say, helicoptering, were suddenly withdrawing, sitting in their rooms. It was difficult to get them to, you know, stop looking at their screens. And with a pandemic, even people who were not thinking about it suddenly were stuck at home. And they felt what it meant in their bodies, in their mental state, to be in front of the screen all the time. And they suddenly felt that it made a difference. They felt that it matters if you see people in person. Um, before the pandemic, people, you know, online education in colleges was a big thing. It still is a big thing. But but when the pandemic started and colleges said they're going to do everything online, the students revolted. They suddenly didn't want that. They they wanted to be to see people. They wanted to be in the classroom. So I think now that you're asking me this question in 2023, I, there are lots of people who care about this and they are looking for a way out, but they don't know what to do because they tried all the self-help measures and nothing seems to really work. So I think at this point, my book is for everyone. Okay. So what would be a way you describe yourself, your expertise in a few sentences? Um, I'm a law professor. I'm interested in an area of law that few of my colleagues Look at most of my colleagues who do law and technology are interested in how you give uh, people incentives to create, you know, copyrights, patents. I've always been interested in how people use technologies, how it affects their lives, and what role the law could play. So I spent my career, I started talking about reproductive technologies and genetics, and then the internet and some privacy. And I've I've moved across technologies just looking at how our lives changes. Actually, one of my articles was about overparenting because early on at the time, how people use technology to overparent and what is the legal role here? Mm. 
Okay, well, that's interesting. Tell me what you mean by that. The overparenting article. So the time that came out a while ago, so it was written in 2009 when people were not really looking at the phenomenon. Oh, and okay. so we, me and my co-author at Svitriga, we defined the phenomenon at the time. It was, And then we looked at how people are using uh, technology to monitor their kids, whether it was the phones or whether it was, you know, checking everything online to see, is my kid progressing well? And we look at what, how this is changing legal norms about what's good parenting. I think now we're about 13 years removed from the time the article was published. And a lot of these things we already, we realize have happened. Yeah. You claim in the book that self-help measures give us the illusion that we're in control of our screen time. Can you explain how this illusion developed? Yeah. So... I would say around 2009, things started changing. We got smartphones, so we could suddenly connect everywhere. We could text everywhere. We couldn't check it. We go online everywhere. And we got social networks. Facebook uh, was big at the time. And the thing is, people, nobody ever thought, I'm going to end up spending five hours on my phone and five more on my iPad. God knows how many hours on the computer a day. Basically, we just made very small decisions. You know, for me, I was a mom. I had to commute to work on the train and I had no time. So I decided I'm going to be efficient. I'm going to text my babysitters on the way to work. Then I decided I'll answer all my work email before I get there. So when I get there, I can actually focus on what I need to write. And I didn't realize that when I was making these tiny commitments, I'm ending, I'll end up spending so much time online. Because I'll be, I'll keep going back to see, did I get another email? Did I get another text? Did somebody comment on Facebook? So we we were under this illusion that we we're made, making tiny decisions, but we didn't really control how much time we spend online because that was determined by the tech industry. The tech industry has a business. We always got things for free. We got Gmail for free. We got um, Facebook for free. But the business model uses our time as a resource. So tech companies need to have us online for as long as possible so they can collect more data on us and target advertising at us. Again, they need us to be there to see the advertising and to buy the products. That's how the whole model works. And they designed many features using our deepest psychological vulnerabilities to make sure we stay online for longer. So while we thought, we are in control, we're deciding, we we made the initial decisions, but we never made the decision that this will end up be how we spend so many hours of our lives. And that was not really determined by us. Yeah, no, that's true. And you use the fable of the frog. Right. <laughs> so it's basically the fable, the famous fable of the frog in the water is that when you throw a frog into tepid, uh, lukewarm water, it can still jump out. When it's boiling, it's too late. I really think this is what happened to us because we were thrown into the water around 2009. And we didn't notice it because it was just one thing after another, after another. And by the time we realized, and I think this is really coming to central consciousness around 2018, when people 
especially parents started realizing what was going on. At that point, it was very difficult to jump out of the water because everything was, we did was on screens. Uh, our smartphones, our, our emails everywhere, our shopping, an entire part of very powerful part of the economy whose business model was based on having us there. Yes. But that's such a good point. And that really struck me when, when you said that is like when it first came out, we wouldn't say, Hey, would you like to get on this and be on it for five hours a day? We would have laughed. Here we are. All right. So can you explain a bit about what common self-help measures have been tried by individuals, parents, and why they have failed? Yeah, so I, I experienced this thing a bit early because when I realized what was happening, I created a school outreach program. So my law students went uh, to talk to kids, just got their first cell phones, fifth and sixth grade at the time, and I spoke to parents. We had a half a dozen schools in New York and New Jersey, public schools in Newark, private schools in Manhattan, a big mix of schools. And when I started speaking to parents, like people, people it was 2017, they were not so aware. So I thought, and I really, really believe at the time, okay, we just have to make people aware. And I, I gave, I would come up with a slide with all these things that parents can do, like, you know, not have phones at dinner, not have phones at bedtime, use apps, model to the kids. And I thought it was working. And I actually was going to write a different book. I was going to write a book about the power of awareness, how we could use law to remind people and to, to give them warnings and to tell them what's happening. And But then I think after a year of that, I realized the parents were getting desperate. They were not, they were, nothing was changing. They were feeling powerless. They were in endless fights with their kids. These self-help measures did not work because we were not really in control. It mm. was basically, you were fighting a battle against an invisible enemy. We could not even, even people like me who knew what was going on would forget and spend hours on my computer doing nothing. And the tech companies went a step further because they wanted us to feel that we're in control. It's one of the biggest arguments that corporations use when they have a product that's harmful and it, the truth comes out. You're the ones who want to use it and you're responsible. So what they did here is they gave us tools. So, and for parents, it's especially difficult because they were given all these ways to monitor their kids. But these things, they might have worked with smaller kids, but once your kids got to middle school and their whole life was an Instagram or a Snapchat, it became impossible. Not only that, these different tools were not working very well at all. For example, you could not separate between schoolwork and just being on the computer. And they kept changing it and changing it in a way that made it more complicated for parents, but easier for kids to get around. These tools were not meant to help us succeed. They were just meant to build this illusion again to run control. And mm. they gave us adults tools as well. You know, screen time, how much time we spend on the phone, and we can limit um, how much time we spend on apps, but they did nothing to really uh, change the addictive elements of their apps or devices. Mm. 
So on that point, what are some of the most prominent false narratives that you see in the media about technology addiction? Well, I think that despite the fact that we have seen whistleblowers coming in, you know, Francis Hogan, the Facebook whistleblower who, you know, exposed all everything that was going on with Instagram and how Facebook, which owns Instagram, knew that it was addictive and harmful for kids. And Tristan Harris also exposed a lot of the ways that these technologies are addictive. And all these articles got tons of publicity. But still, people always ask, and what we see in the news a lot, is how can we help our kids? How can we do self-help? So despite the fact that we know that the tech companies are addictive, us, we're still the biggest narrative is what can we do at home? And so that's one thing. And the other thing, and I think that's something that's in the media, but it's very deep for all of us, we have this belief that technology will help us, that technology will make our world better. And for sure, we believe it will make our kids' world better. So we think that our kids should have as much tech education as possible, as much technology in the classroom as possible, without taking into account the harms. We now have tons of evidence of how excessive screen time affects cognitive development, affects mental health, affects attention. But we are still living in this false narrative that technology is good. Mm -hmm. So in chapter three, you discuss in detail the ways in which tech companies take advantage of our cognitive vulnerabilities to hijack our time. So what are some of those examples? So... I'll tell you two, I'll give two examples. One is a more general one. One is they take away our stopping cues. Mm -hmm. So, and this is based on a famous uh, soup experiment where uh, one group got a regular bowl of soup and the other one got this bowl of soup where they couldn't see the bottom. So the second group ate 70% more soup and they had no idea they were eating more. They had no stopping cues. And this is all over the internet. You have the infinite scroll on Twitter, on uh, uh, TikTok, on Instagram, Facebook. There's never an end of the page. Keep going, keep going, keep going. You have the autoplay. Again, on TikTok, on YouTube, on Netflix, the next video always comes on. Stopping signs are gone. Mm. Then I think there's one, I think... Uh, I think Snapstrix is the worst of all, actually. And Snapstrix has exists for nothing but to get the kids back on Snapchat to see that uh, advertising. There's no content. Basically, with the Snapstreak, a kid has to send a streak to a friend and get one back within 24 hours. They start a streak. The more days they go, the higher the number of streaks they have. And there's a chart, there's badges, and you have all your friends with how many days. Now, it doesn't matter what you send, anything, but you cannot miss a day. Because if either of you misses a day, you lose the friendship and you lose the chart. And this for kids is a sign of popularity. Now, so basically you're sending stuff which has no content. It's a horrible disaster for you if you parents take your phone because you've lost everything and all it does is get you back on snapchat to see their ads i know i've seen that i mean i'm a therapist and i see that in my practice a lot i hate that it does cause so many problems 
No, I agree. And the no stopping cue is so, it's so true. I mean, I'm guilty of that. If it's late at night and I'm just starting to scroll, you can just scroll forever. And then I get mad at myself because I've just scrolled for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. But you've just highlighted the biggest problem. I think we keep blaming ourselves. We blame ourselves for what we're doing. We blame our kids. Is my kid an addict? Is something wrong with my kids? Something wrong with my family? Why are my kids in their room and their screens all the time? So we're blaming ourselves. We're trying to fight battles with ourselves, which are not successful. We fight battles in our homes, which are very difficult to fight, especially when kids get older. Instead of a taking these fights and taking them to the public sphere to change the system. Mm, Yeah. All right. So you say in the book, it's actually the remnants of choice that are so misleading and reinforce the illusion of control. I think that's what you were just talking about. Is there more to say about that? Yes. I think another part of it is that, you know, for me, when I have a conference paper due something, I have to prepare a class, I'm able to stop, you know, spending my time on on, uh, different uh, reading the New York Times or looking at Facebook. I can do it when I need to. And that is the the remnants of choice that we can stop. So then we blame ourselves. We can do this. Why don't we always do that? Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. That's so good. I read your book and I still blame myself. So I think that blaming myself, it's so it's so true. We do that and we don't see the bigger picture. So in the book, you say the real choice maker is the technology industry. Can you explain more what you mean by that? So the technology industry, as I mentioned, they have this business model. They want us to be online for as long as possible. They created these different addictive designs to make sure we're there for as long as possible. And these designs are invisible, so we don't see them and we, we, we don't even notice what's happening to us. So we're not really making the choice. They're making the choice for us to spend so much time online. Mm. Do you talk to your 15-year-olds about this and is this helpful for them? You know, that's a good question. I think my kids are in a bit of a different situation because I've been thinking about this for the last five years. And actually, when I started my outreach program, they were exactly at that age of the kids I was trying to reach out to. They helped me try out the program. So I think they've been very, very aware of it. And they are much more aware of how they use their phones. But I don't think that if I had tried to tell them now, Do not do certain things. This would have worked. I'm sure it would not have worked. And lots of people come to me and ask me, what should we do? Can we, you know, take the phone away from the kid when we go on trips? And and I tell them, you cannot do that. You know, this is their whole social life. You can talk to them if they're open to it. You can remind them of what happened during virtual school how you felt when you spent so much time on your screen, how tired you felt at the end of the day, how you didn't even want to go out because you were so tired. And pay attention, maybe you're starting to feel like this now. If you don't take a break soon and go outside, you might feel the same way. And some kids might be receptive to it. But I still think that the most important thing is for parents to influence their communities through schools and other actions 
because I do think things are going to change. I think there's already movement for change. But we have here a generation of kids who has been sitting in front of their screens for over a decade, plus a pandemic. It's difficult because we can't just, you know, neglect them and say, okay, we cannot do anything. We just let them sit there because it's the easiest thing to do. On the other hand, to fight these wars with our kids, which is difficult for us to fight with ourselves, I really think there are many ways for people to take action, and it's not just for lawyers alone, to change things in a way that will end up reflecting back to norms at at the house at home. And you also explain how history is repeating itself. So what kind of tactics, both legal and psychological, have been used by other industries and how did those relate to what the technology industry or big tech is doing? So I looked at my book, I looked at uh, uh, the tobacco industry, the fights against tobacco and the fights against food and to protect privacy. And I would say the most interesting thing I've learned is how they use this personal choice, personal responsibility argument to defend themselves. So it would go like that. You know, smokers would go to court and sue the cigarette companies because they were sick with lung cancer, dying. And the cigarette companies say, you chose to smoke. Uh, It's your responsibility. And actually, they convinced the courts for decades. Another thing that happened was that people were suing the food industry because of junk food. So, for example, a group of teens uh, went to sue McDonald's in New York and McDonald's argued the same thing. They basically said, you chose to eat McDonald's. Nobody forced you to supersize. You're responsible. And again, they won. So it's important to see how central this argument is because that's what the tech industry is doing already. When uh, gay manufacturers had to go to the Federal Trade Commission to for a discussion about loot boxes, which is a very addictive element in games, that was their first argument. The gamers are choosing the, to play. Then their parents are responsible. And they give us these tools, which, as I said, are not there really to help us stop. They're there to convince us that we are making the choices and that we are uh, responsible. TikTok has this video called You're in Control. I mean, I think also looking at this is very interesting because you can see where this argument breaks. And it breaks when it gets to children. Yeah. Because it's much harder to say, you know, a child is responsible for their choice. A child uh, made a choice. And that's where things changed a lot. If you look at cigarettes, even today, you know, Kids cannot buy cigarettes in many states under the age of 21. This does not fly for adults. Schools are required to weigh kids and to send their BMI to their parents. You cannot imagine going to work and have your employer weighing you. So basically, we can see that that's the way out. And if we're seeing the action that's already taking place, the bills to protect children, the lawsuits, it's children are the Achilles heel of all of this. I think change will come to all of us through children. Early on in the pandemic, technology sort of showed up as our savior, like think about the Zoom calls. But how has the pandemic changed the technology over usage problem? Has it made it more severe? And where do you see future trends going? Both actually. It made more severe and it made things more hopeful. So it made it more severe because people started using screens much more. And if you look at the data, 
screen time has never gone back to the way it was before the pandemic. And you also have many more people who are working from home and have just new habits, which tie them more to screens. And that is not changing. And so then on the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, people felt how it is. Both adults and children felt what it means to be in front of a screen all the time. We are headed in a certain trajectory. We're headed to more and more screens, whether through virtual realities or smart cities where everything is connected, where you have to use your phone everywhere you go, when there's connectivity every place you go, even outside. The pandemic, in a way, gave us an opportunity to think. We never got a chance to think because... We were like the frog in the water. We just kept acquiring screen time and eventually there was so much screen around us. I think now many of us realize what has happened. And so we have an option to pause and decide for the first time, make some kind of autonomous choice. Is this what we want for ourselves, for our children, given all the data we're seeing, given that we're not the ones controlling it? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And like you said before, I mean, I was so sick of Zoom calls during the pandemic. I would do anything to be around a real human being. So we did get sick of it. Right. And I think we remember it. I think and nobody really forgot how it was. Right. So in the prescriptive part of Unwired, you lay out how different types of players attempting diverse measures will be the best tactic to bring about change to technology addiction. Can you give us a peek at the diverse map of such actors and what their roles should be? Yeah. So first of all, from my look at history, one thing I've realized is that there's no magic pill here. It's not going to be, you know, one Supreme Court decision or one law that's going to change everything. There are lots of things. And it's important for people to understand because people are feeling so powerless now, especially parents, that there's already lots of movement taking place. There are many class actions by parents against game makers and against social networks for addicting the kids and for the impact. We There's been lots of bills, especially to protect kids, to eliminate addictive measures. It's true, they have not gone through yet, but that's the way it goes. Failure is not necessarily failure. It, can, it just takes time until things change. This is really pressure on technology companies to redesign their products to be le- less addictive in a way. We have lots of lawyers involved, but this is not a movement for lawyers alone. I think the most important place is changing how we use spaces. So by spaces, the most important space I think about and write about is schools in the classroom. We've had for over a decade this policy of the more technology, the better. Schools get funds for incorporating more technology. And really, it was a bit slow because teachers like to teach a certain way for many years, so they didn't really incorporate it. But then came the pandemic and they had no choice. So they started teaching with Minecraft and Roblox and posting their lectures on TikTok. And now things have not really gone back. Teachers have learned these new methods. So you have like the bad guys of the tech companies inside the classroom more screen time than ever. Now, knowing all we know about kids and cognitive development and the impact, do we want them to spend so much time in front of screens at school? And that's not really just at school because it affects the home. If you're on screen in school, you're going to go home and your homework will be on screens. And if you're playing Minecraft in school, school just legitimized Minecraft. How can your mom tell you to get off the game? 
So parents have lots of impact here because France took measures, for example, they banned cell phones in schools completely, even during recess. But in the U.S., all decisions are based so far, at least on for individual schools or in districts. So parents may have an impact what school they send their kids to, impact within the schools, within the district on this. Parents are also business owners. They are professionals. They can make decisions where they work. I was this uh, hotel with my kids this summer, and we were shocked. We were sitting by the pool, and we saw a family coming in, and there were two girls, and the mom gave them these special plastic pads to put their iPhone inside so they could play with the iPhone in the pool. <laughs> and, and the mama had it as well. And I thought, this is something that, as a hotel, you can try to disincentivize, saying phones are not allowed inside the pool or something like that. Or as a restaurant owner, you can say, we're not using QR codes because the moment you use them, your phone is on the table and a part of the conversation already. So people can change things through changing the norms in spaces. And mm. if you think about it, about bars with no cigarettes, nobody could imagine that. And yeah, yeah, that's a good yet point. We have it. Yeah, those are really good ideas. So I know you talk about this in your book, but can you talk again about some of the studies and the research about the cognitive development and screens for kids? Yeah, so I think what has been going on for a while is what I call the science wars, which happens every time when you have a corporation that's a powerful industry with a harmful product. The truth comes out and there's lots of scientific evidence and then they come up with evidence, they fund research and the science war begins. But what we've had for the last two, three years is so much data coming in and certain areas, in you know, there's lots of data for adults as well, but I think for kids, this is starting to look more like a public health crisis. So for cognitive development, psychology studies are showing an impact of excessive screen time on cognitive development for test taking. But you also have now brain imaging studies showing that way that the brains of kids who were exposed to excessive screen time is looks different from the brains of kids who were not. And this connects to the results in the cognitive testing. And you see this, this is not just about toddlers. You see this all the way up to 18 years old. And I think that should give us a big pause. The mental health, there has been a lot of debate, you know, what is the cause? What is the effect? Because there's so much of an increase in suicide rates and depression, anxiety. But now that we have more granular research, you can see, first of all, it started peaking from 2010, around the time when we got smartphones, we got social networks. And the, yes, there were other trends, like did helicopter parenting take away kids' autonomy and now they cannot function? Possibly, but we're seeing many more researchers really try to unpack everything, and especially seeing the impact on girls. So it's yes. more specific. It's not all screen time. It's social media is more problematic in this respect. If you sit and you read the New York Times, it probably has less of an effect on you. So mental health, there's lots of research about attention. Kids are just unable to pay attention after moving from one thing to another. 
And then there's stuff like obesity and other findings. After so much data, the thing is for policy, for laws, you need to put an end to the science wars. You need to have uh, governmental organizations, professional organizations come out with a proclamation. That's what happened with cigarettes in 1964, where the Surgeon General announced it's a health hazard. But even that took a decade and a half. Yeah. Which is unbelievable, thinking yeah. back. Yeah. So I think we have very partial recommendations from the American Pediatric Associations or the World Health Organizations, looking, you know, just screen time for very small kids, usually under five. We need much more comprehensive recommendations. This will end these science wars and will be a very important tool for policy and lawmaking. Yeah. I love that you said that we couldn't even imagine that there would not be cigarettes in restaurants or bars. So change really is possible for sure. So you say that there's a movement already in place for change. What are the biggest accomplishments so far? I think the biggest accomplishment so far is awareness. You cannot change without people being aware of the problem. And this came from the whistleblower reports like Francis Hogan, Tristan Harris. People know the problem exists. So that is that is really important. We're also seeing pressure on certain things. I mentioned loot boxes before. Most adults don't know what loot boxes are, but every kid seems to know what loot boxes are. Are So there are these uh, surprise boxes inside of games. If you want to get extra power, extra points, extra swords, you can get these into these boxes. They look like llamas in Fortnite, different shapes, but you don't know what's inside. Now, if kids want to progress faster, then they can purchase them. So suddenly we had something which didn't look a bit like gambling. Kids are spending money. So when you have gambling with kids, this got people's attention. Regulators in Europe and many countries have already restricted use of loot boxes. There have been lots of lawsuits. This is the beginning of you know, opening up all these addictive elements because when the losses are brought up, where when the arguments are made against loot boxes, they talk about the addictive nature of the game as well. We're seeing progress in this way. We're seeing also direct, there's a very important case going on in Quebec against Fortnite, which is parents have been suing Fortnite for being as addictive as cocaine. Wow. Looking at all the features of Fortnite, which are very similar to addictive features all over the internet. So yeah, we do not have a bill yet. We do not have specific success, but we've, we're seeing so much action, so much awareness that this is going to make progress. And I think for us as parents, the thing is, what can we do in the meantime in our communities to make change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so helpful. So any last advice for the moms listening? As I said before, I think don't blame yourself. Try to do what you can, but don't blame yourself if it doesn't work out. And shift your focus from your home, from your computer to what you can do in your community, because that will change the norms, which will eventually reflect on how your child behaves at home. I also think teaching teens to think critically about the big picture, about how tech companies are trying to manipulate them, because what teen wants to be manipulated? 
Absolutely. I think if the, if a teen is interested in this and that wants to hear, I think it's great to give them the information so they can see how it happens. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gaia. This has been very enlightening. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dow Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.